I don't think you can ever be too cautious, but at the same time, have a list, get the questions answered. And if the answers are favorable, you also don't want to forever stay without investing. So don't be frozen and paralyzed in analysis paralysis, have a clear checklist. And if the deal meets the checklist, be ready, you know? So that, that's highly what I would recommend. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Podcast, where Kyle Curtin takes you on an extraordinary journey alongside renowned multifamily real estate sponsors and syndication experts from every corner of the United States. We teach you how to harness the power of passive real estate investing and witness the transformation of your wealth building strategy. Let's create wealth together. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 119 of the Creating Wealth podcast. I am your host, Kyle Curtin. I am a co-GP specializing in investor relations and capital raising for multifamily sponsors. Today, we get the great pleasure of chatting with Sandhya Sashadri with Engineered Capital out of Dallas. She's a super experienced operator specializing in asset management, over 25 years of investing experience, owns over 3,000 doors as limited partners and general partners, and she's a very established speaker for many different events, conferences, dozens of podcasts. Super excited to have you on here. How's everything going? (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Kyle, and great job having a podcast to help educate the audience on the various aspects of multifamily. Thank you so much. It it means a lot. It's definitely been been a lot of fun, you know, Mm -hmm. and always, uh, always fun to, you know, be able to chop it up with some, um, you know, really cool people. So let's kind of jump in, you know, take us kind of through your early days, you know, getting into the investing world, finding out about real estate, jumping deeper into the multifamily sector and, and kind of where you are now um, and kind of what's going on for the future, what you're thinking. So I was raised to follow the traditional path, which is make the best grades you can get into college, get a job. Uh, work four decades in that job, save for retirement, and then, you know, retire. Uh, what happened along the way was, yes, I was good in math, like a lot of Asians, got into an engineering world, got my engineering degree, realized very quickly that, uh, you know, I started with a lovely salary of $36,000. And by the time I paid taxes, etc., there was very little left in my bank account. And I realized that if I wanted to be, let's say, a millionaire as a goal that many of us have in our lifetime, it wasn't going to happen with my W-2 salary. So I got educated again. I went to evening and weekend classes to get a business degree, join investor clubs, etc., because I realized very quickly that it's investments that's going to make us money. So if you're out there working hard on a W-2, you probably realize very quickly that your net worth probably super high only from either the primary home you own or from some investments you made relative to how much you make in a salary for most of us. And so once I realized that, I went into the stock market and did well in the stock market and realized I didn't have any tax breaks, tax advantages, and I didn't have a cool idea to go start my own business. So real estate was the natural progression for that. I've always heard about single family rentals and fix and flips, but I didn't have a handy person background to be able to do that. I didn't want to get that lovely call on Thanksgiving Day, you know, to fix a leaky toilet. (laughs) So I stayed away from it. And I heard from a friend, I attended a weekend event where I learned about 
multifamily where you could buy large multifamily, you know, 50, 100, 200 doors and up kind of large scale multifamily, because then the property generates enough cash for you to pay for on-site staff and a third party property management company. So you have leasing manager, maintenance staff to handle all this day-to-day -day stuff. And I become more of an asset manager managing these property managers. Uh, we work together, of course, as a team because all of your success does depend on the property management executing your business plan. So you sort of partner with them to go uh, manage these properties and make money for investors because these are very large properties that require millions of dollars of money that you and I probably don't have to put down as a down payment. You know, I probably have, you know, a few thousand dollars to buy a single family home down the street. But these are, you know, 10 million, 20 million kind of properties. So even the down payment, as you know, requires a lot of money. And that's why we raise that money from investors. And then we got to return the money to them investors with the property being profitable because none of us have that kind of cash lying around. So that's pretty much my journey of, you know, engineer stocks and now real estate. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think it's incredibly cool, you know, and I definitely feel you, you know, kind of when it comes to discovering real estate as like this crazy vehicle to, you know, generate, uh, you know, create wealth, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. and that type of thing. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I definitely feel you there, you know, kind of getting the calls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I, I started off with a three family in like central Massachusetts and yeah, I've definitely, definitely been there a couple of times, you know, and um, kind of jumping into this, this space, but yeah, no, that's, that's incredibly interesting. Um, so what would you say are, you know, kind of some pros and cons to be aware of for like limited partners jumping into, um, you know, the passive investing type of world? So the very first passive investment that I made, in fact, I've made like 26 passive investments. So I'm quite experienced on the passive as well as the active side. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, the very first thing was to get to know, like, and trust the sponsorship team. It's like you're betting on the jockey as much as the horse. So make sure you really know these folks. These are not just people that you met once on social media and you're sending over $50,000. So the first thing I would say is, know the sponsorship team. How much do you really know about them? What do you know about them beyond social media? Can you go knock their door? Do you actually know where they live? Do you actually know anything else about them? So take your time to make that decision. Don't do it quickly. Um, what is their experience? So in my case, I'm the asset manager, I'm the general partner. So if you have questions about the deal, you know you can call me and ask me about it. In some cases, the asset management team is completely separated from the people who are upfront marketing the deal or finding the deal, et cetera. So it depends on the structure of each team. So get to know the team structure and the team's roles so that you know after the deal is closed and now it's the next three to five years of the hold period, who do you need to talk to? Who is going to be able to answer questions if you have concerns about the performance of the property? And right now we're in the middle of, you know, 2023. We've had 10 continuous interest rate hikes happen in the past year. And a lot of deals on floating rate loans are having struggles. So it, operations is everything now. So asset management is a very important role. So you've got to bet on the jockey, not the horse. You got to know within that, who are the team members? Have they worked together before? are they familiar with that market? Like they may have done exceptionally well in a different market, but their stakes are different in another location. So they need somebody who's local, who is boots on the ground, who is capable of 
going to the property if something happens, right? I've had emergencies happen at my properties and I'm located within 30 minutes of all my properties because I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is a great market for multifamily. So I haven't had to go elsewhere as a general partner on my deals. So being able to access that property as boots on the ground to me is very important. And the reason is, let's just say the property is in Dallas, but the, all of the sponsorship team is sitting in California. Of course, they could look at amazing reports. They could make very good decisions. But you don't know what is actually happening in the property, even with cameras. And so every time you as a passive investor, you're going to pay, be paying for those lovely first class flights, hotels, et cetera. And these visits are going to happen less frequently. It's not like me. You know, by the time I drive from my house to the Dallas Fort Worth airport, I'm going to pass three of my properties. You know, it's that easy yeah. for me to get to my property. <laughs> so I'm not saying everybody has to have a local asset manager who's that close by, but certainly being able to get there immediately and quickly versus pursuing full-time jobs while they do this part-time and being in charge of millions of dollars, that would definitely concern me. So for me, that's one of the criteria is who has the local knowledge? You may have lived in California. So what do you know about the Dallas market or uh, let's say Atlanta market, if that's where your investment is? Like it's different when somebody's actually lived somewhere and the kind of things they know about the place, the gentrification, the zoning laws and all of that, even though some of this information can be found online, there's nothing to replace that local knowledge. So one thing I do is whether it's a passive investment or me as a general partner, I drive by the property at night. I see what the pulse of the property is. If I'm trying to attract families and the single mom with two kids out there, do I feel safe getting down from my car and walking around the property, you know, at 10 p.m.? So sometimes we'll go out to dinner and I'll say, oh, let's swing by one of my properties or let's swing by this property for which, you know, the broker sent me an OM and I'm curious. Right. So yeah. those things really help me get a pulse. So property location is crucial. So right next to the sponsorship team, who's going to run this deal? The second most important thing is going to be obviously location. Real estate is still all about location. So what are some things you should think about for the location? The biggest thing is economic growth, population growth, diversity of jobs. You don't want to be dependent on just one industry over there. You want to catch the tailwinds of economic growth, not the headwinds. So I like Dallas in that it's centrally located. So we get a lot of movement from the West Coast, the East Coast, as well as your Illinois kind of places. So as an example, I have two properties in the suburb called Irving in Dallas. Mm -hmm which is about 10 minutes from the Dallas-Fort Worth air airport. Um, Caterpillar, which has been in Illinois for 115 years, moved its headquarters to Irving. Okay? Oh, wow. So, so you've got a lot of movement. Um, Wells Fargo is setting up a huge um, business center in Irving, like you know, you're talking $40, $50 million and up kind of investment. Um, the Four Seasons that's right adjacent to the big uh, golf area where all the past tournaments have been held. It's getting a revamp. It's becoming a Ritz-Carlton for $65 million. Um, I could go on and on as far as the list of companies and the variety, right? That's mainly the thing I wanted to point out. You got everything from, from financial sector, industrial, you've got equipment, you've got, you know, things like luxury hotels, everything is putting money into this area. So that's a perfect example of a market to... Uh, choose for your investments because you can catch the tailwinds. The other thing within that market is the little local submarket. How is that one mile radius of your subject property? What does that look like? Um, is it high crime? Is it, uh, you know, is the comparison of rents, for example, 
Are they doing it with a more luxury class property versus yours is only an older C class or B class property? Is that even a fair comparison? Um, is the median household income enough to support those rents? So when they typically in a webinar, you'll see all the different rent numbers they share with you. Oh, if this property, uh, one bedroom is getting $1,000, we're going to bump it up to $1,200, etc. Well, um, if let's say the three bedroom is at $1,500 times 12, you're at $18,000 for the year. You have to at least have a 3x factor, and I recommend higher. So you're at 54, 55K median household income. So look at the most expensive unit, how much they plan to increase that rent. At a minimum, you should have a 3x factor. Plus, are they paying the utilities themselves? Because think about it as a family living paycheck to paycheck. Their entire household income is in that 50 to 60K range. Can they afford this apartment? Or are they going to be constantly late in their payments? Maybe they have one car breakdown. They spent money on that repair. They can't pay your rent, et cetera. You want to have enough of a margin for that. So a question you want to ask is, how did you choose this location, this market? And you can easily look up, like type a little Google search and you can find out median income for that zip code of the address of the property, as well as the crime stats with neighborhood scout or something. So it's very easy to screen a location in five minutes at your fingertips with the internet. So definitely don't uh, forget to do that. The other big piece is, is it a landlord-friendly area? Like Texas is a landlord-friendly state, obviously, but there are blue pockets, as I call it, where you might see rent control. Or if you try to evict a resident, there's going to be those pro bono lawyers sitting there fighting for them. So you need to also know your little pockets. That's why I'm saying the local knowledge is so important. So don't mistake that. So first one is a sponsorship team, their experience. Mm -hmm. The second one is your location. What's the third question to ask? The third question I would ask is, who gave you those numbers? Because garbage in is garbage out in a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you input those numbers? Who told you you could get a $200 rent bump because you put a granite countertop or stainless steel appliances? Where is the data that supports that? Did your local property management company with experience in that local market tell you that this subject property relative to its neighbors from a shopper standpoint, right? If I'm a resident looking to move to that area, am I going to move to your property because of your rents? Am I going to pay you 200 more to be there compared to all the other competitors nearby? So that's a question that a local PM will answer for you. So your property management company you plan to hire should have given you a budget. So the question, if I was a passive investor that I ask a sponsor is who gave you all those numbers? So budget of rents, other income, and expenses should be coming from a property management company who's going to execute your business plan for you. For all your capital expenditures, like, oh, I'm going to exterior paint this. I'm going to completely rebrand this property. I'm going to update 80 interiors in three months. Okay, how realistic is that? Have you done that many <laughs> interiors in that short amount of time? Uh, based on the rent roll, you could see when the leases come out. Only then when somebody vacates, can you go do those updates? So how realistic is it that you could renovate that many units within this amount of time? So just kind of ask these fundamental questions of where did you get the numbers? Who validated these numbers? Anything related to lending, you must have an official term sheet from a lender. Now, what I like is last year we did two loans, which were Freddie Mac loans. And the big advantage with Freddie Mac is that six weeks ahead of time, you could lock in your rate. Ah. So you could pay what's called a good faith deposit and lock in that interest rate. So when interest rates were rising in 2022, 
we didn't have a trouble raising money because we said, hey, guys, we locked in 4.56 permanent fixed rate 10-year loan at five years interest only with Freddie Mac. So when we presented the webinar, people were like, okay, I was so afraid of this floating rate loan. You're telling me it's fixed and it's fixed for 10 years. Okay, I'm not worried about it. So we were able to raise money easily in that deal because of that reason. So similarly, if it's a floating rate loan, one thing you need to know is that until about a few days prior to closing, you don't know how much you're going to get in proceeds on such a loan. So today, let's say I'm having a webinar. I'm telling you, hey, it's a floating rate loan. I think I'm going to get 10 million. Well, six weeks later, Powell increases the rates again, another quarter point, et cetera. And the lender decides, oh, well, I'm only going to give you 9 million or 8 million. Well, then the general partnership team is out there scrambling to raise that money last minute. But let's say they figure that out. You as a passive investor, your leverage right on the deal has lowered. So there is more LP money, more of the passive investor money in the deal, which means your returns are less. So a couple of days prior to closing, a question I like to ask sponsors is, has anything changed in the assumptions since the date of the webinar? Do you think you're still getting the same interest rate, the same proceeds? You told me you were buying a rate cap. Did you buy that rate cap? Has the cost of that rate cap gone up? These are questions to ask if the sponsors are getting a floating rate loan. Because even if they have the money to fund all of this, the underwriting changes because now your LTV loan to value is less. The lender is giving you less money to buy it, which means you need more investor capital in there. So be sure to check that on a floating rate bridge deal. So that's the term sheet side of it. So again, we're going back to the main topic of who is giving you the inputs into this spreadsheet. So everything related to property management is income and expenses. Everything related to the term sheet helps you with the loan numbers in a spreadsheet. What other inputs? Well, there is something called insurance. And depending on where you are, that can be drastically <laughs> different. Even if you currently open a, own a property in that area based on insurance rates from last year, this year, those rates have changed, mostly increased. And increased sometimes double, depending on where you are. Coastal <laughs> cities, Florida. Houston, et cetera. So you need a current term insurance quote and an insurance company who's got experience insuring in that market to give you a prediction of what that's going to be in the coming years. Because only that is going to be going into your assumptions as you plan out like a five-year forecast for this deal. So again, these may not be perfect, but at least you've tried to get the maximum data you can at the present time. Next, with if it's states like Texas, the property taxes are a huge deal. So you want to work with a property tax protest company that's going to give you estimates by county. So Johnson County is going to be less than Holland County, Dallas County, Tarrant County, Denton County. You know, just to give you examples of a variety of little places where you might be finding your deal in Dallas, as my example. And so the tax protest company has to give you that number. So all the inputs that go into your spreadsheet must come from neutral third-party sources. And so you just ask the question, who validated that number as a passive investor? Wow. Those are three very big points. So who's the team? Have they worked with before? What's the experience in the local market? And have they done this kind of deals before? What's their track record? Just like when you go to hire a, con a contractor, right? You're going to hire a contractor to do a 50K kitchen remodel for you 
Are you just going to base that on something you read off the internet because they had a beautiful website and they showed you these magnificent kitchens that they remodeled? No, no now, way. What are you going to do? <laughs> you're going to call somebody for reference. So you're mm -hmm. going to call your neighbor, your friend who rec recommended this contractor for you. You're going to ask them, did they really do this kind of job for you? What were the challenges? Were they on time? Did they stay within scope and budget? What happened? Right. So you should do the same due diligence here because you're talking about a 50K investment, just like your kitchen <laughs> remodel. The fact is, you know, people spend more time researching a dishwasher or a refrigerator for their house or a washing machine or the, I don't know, the next great feature for their car than an investment like this. So I don't think you can ever be too cautious, but at the yeah. same time, have a list, get the questions answered. And if the answers are favorable, you also don't want to forever stay without investing. So don't be frozen and paralyzed in analysis paralysis. Have a clear checklist. And if the deal meets the checklist, be ready. You know, so that that's highly what I would recommend. Beyond that, there's a lot of little things that you definitely want to watch out for. So you want to know what kind of stress test they're doing. What are the worst case scenarios you have planned out? You're assuming, let's say, a 90% occupancy years one and two. What if the occupancy dips to 80%? And there's a difference between physical occupancy versus economic occupancy. Physical is, I have 100 doors, 90 residents are staying, so I'm at 90% occupancy. But if only 85 of them pay, then I'm at 85% economic occupancy. Five of them didn't pay me. And so how low can you go in your collections or economic occupancy to break even? So you need to always have that break-even number in mind. You always want to spend less money than what you had initially budgeted just to see what comes up. There's weather-related issues. There's storms that can happen. COVID struck. Nobody planned for it. What if residents can't pay, et cetera? Inflation is here. Maybe it's a little bit contained now, but still, if the price of eggs hasn't gone down lately when I check. <laughs> so if you have more tenants who can't pay your rent, you know, so definitely do stress tests. So ask them, ask a sponsor, what kind of stress, stress test are you doing? Are you doing a rent shock? Like if I can't increase the rent at all, and in fact, if I have to go slightly down in rent, how long can my property sustain itself? How long can you still keep making those mortgage payments? What if the collections are less? Can I still make the payment? What is the lowest occupancy I can handle? Uh, what are some you know, lender criteria before when they start taking control? So those are some questions I ask, especially because many of you are sophisticated co-general partners. You're trying to find the right sponsorship team with, for whom you want to raise money. So you want to be aware of that. Another thing I ask, especially from a co-general partner or a passive investor standpoint is, does every main GP, right? You probably have two or three head GPs, if you will, who are going to be the main controlling general partners in that manager LLC. How much skin in the game do they have? So when you think about, let's say, a $30 million deal, that's a huge deal. Let's talk about even a 2% acquisition fee. You're already at $600,000. Okay, that's getting split with a majority of it going to that main, you know, controlling GPs. How much money do they have left in the deal after taking their acquisition fee? So they usually get 100K, let's say, as an acquisition fee on such a large deal. And they put 50K in the deal. They actually came out ahead. It's true that their reputation matters, et cetera, if the deal goes south. But they do they actually lose any money if the deal performs badly, right? 
So that's important to me. I want you to have a financial stake in the deal after closing, after taking your fees. What is the net? Are you net positive? Are you net negative like I am as a limited partner, right? So that's an important question that I ask. Um, other than that, has the team worked together well? Have they done many deals together? I don't want to get into deals where the partners are fighting. Yeah. I've seen that before. Experienced <laughs> that before. It's not fun. Yeah. Uh, they don't uh, cohesively work together to solve the problems that need to be solved, you know? And that's a big problem uh, when they don't work together because then they are distracted and they don't spend time or effort on the right things because they're too busy fighting. Another thing I like to know is um, their liquidity. Why do I need to know this? You know, they ask me, are you an accredited investor? Are you a sophisticated investor? They want to know what my net worth is in a way. So I like to know in turn, what's their liquidity? Why? Because let's say they've done a dozen deals. We heard about the Houston foreclosures recently. He may have had the liquidity to help one deal, but not across that many deals when every one of them is 700, 800 and 1000 doors kind of large deals. Yeah. So let's say for some reason, something happens with the deal, the occupancy dips, uh, you're on a negative cash flow situation month to month. Can you, as a sponsorship team, float the deal, put your acquisition fee back, et cetera, before you go back to the investors to make a capital call? And that's a new question I started asking this year because of what I've seen happen with a lot of these floating rate bridge loan deals. That's one thing. In some cases, the lender might ask you because your rate cap is expiring soon, they might ask you to put additional capital to buy a new rate cap. Now, in 2021, when I bought a rate cap, I paid 40000 for it. Today, we're more than two years into that rate cap, and it's worth 400000 And it's only got one year left. It's uh, July 2024 expiry. So I still got 12 months left. But because of this uncertainty of these interest rates continuing to increase, which we think there's going to be a couple of more interest rate hikes, um, that rate cap is worth so much. So if I have to buy a new rate cap now, and I happen to have an 800 door deal, which I don't, but like that example of the Houston forklift, the cost to go buy that is so expensive now. And so how liquid are the general partners? What's the result if you're gonna make a capital call? Show me the path to where I'm gonna get my money back. Otherwise, why should I contribute? So as a passive investor, I've been you know, the victim, if you will, of a couple of capital calls and it's not pretty. I mean, it's because they didn't buy a rate cap and that's not cool. So if somebody gets you a floating rate bridge loan and they don't buy a rate cap, you want them to confirm that two days prior to closing. Why? Because that's when you buy a rate cap. You don't buy the rate cap today, two months in advance of closing. So yeah. you want to definitely be asking that question. And so the liquidity question comes back to if everyone in the partnership team, general partnership team is living paycheck to paycheck and they don't have even extra, you know, 50K, 100K to float, but that's the kind of money they took in their acquisition fee. Okay, we got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully that's going to help a lot of passive investors in asking the right questions. Yeah, no, 100%. And that was absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> you oh, know, awesome. Seriously, like it's there's so much in there, especially mm -hmm. I really, really like the liquidity question in general, because mm -hmm. I feel like that one is definitely not as common, especially like you said, in today's environment, um, you know, with still some potential rate hikes coming and, um, you know, things looking uncertain in, in mm -hmm. some aspects. And 
yeah, no, that's that's definitely something that's uh, that's incredibly important. And, you know, how sustainable is it, mm-hmm. um, you know, having that like extra layer of potential defense there, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to kind of secure things, uh, you know, for the LPs there. But oh, my goodness. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was that was amazing. And it's that's extremely cool, too, how, um, you know, you, you guys are like hyper local to like several of your deals, you know, because it's it's super interesting. Um you know, like, like you mentioned, you know, like sponsors are, you know, placed all over the country and investing in markets all over the place. And, and it's funny you say that because a friend of mine um, is, you know, another uh, woman that raises capital. And she was telling me a story one time of like, you know, this deal that they were working on, it was in Texas, I don't know where it was, but, mm-hmm. um, and she was telling me, she's like, yeah, you know, like we had, you know, our, our plans and everything, everything, you know, the feedback that we were getting from the PMs and, and everything was going well. And then we go on site right after we close. And like, there's a bunch of stuff that like, just wasn't at all how they expected. And it just really opened up my eyes that they like, even being on the GP team, like there's a lot of things that got swept under the rug that they didn't actually know about until they did their first visit, you know, whether it was like scheduled or if it was, you know, kind of a random thing. I don't know. But it was just, it was eye-opening to me. I'm like, holy crap, you know, like you really got to have a very strong boots on the ground team that like everybody is, is really on the same page there, you know, and it just, it made me a lot more aware uh, going forward after having that conversation, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The unit walks are very important because you know, what's going to happen. A unit is going to remain vacant two weeks, next week's update, it becomes a month, then it becomes six weeks. And guess what? There have been a few temporary guests staying there, paying cash to your property manager. So walking vacant units is crucial. You can't do that if you're sitting in California paying quarterly visits to your property. That's just not going to happen. So you got to have somebody local who's doing that. No matter how much you trust your PM, you've got to verify it. Another thing is they might say something looks great, but in your eyes, when you drive the property, you notice the trash. You notice the poorly painted unit. You notice how they're like, ah, this is just a resident paying 800 bucks in rent. Why should I care? No, they are your paying customer. A resident is a paying customer. I don't care how much rent they pay, whether they pay, you know, your $10,000 luxury mansion or your $800 a month for a one bedroom. I don't care. They paid a rent. You owe them a service. You owe them a clean, comfortable, safe place to stay. So you've got to do your part. So I'm very passionate about that uh, as a landlord, as a owner, and as a renter myself. When I came as a student, I was a renter. And, you know, I'm paying a rent. You're giving me a service. It's just like going to a restaurant and paying for a meal. The meal sucks. I want a refund. You know, I want another replacement meal. It's just like that. Uh, If you don't have residents, you don't have customers. You won't be in business. So that's super important. So one of the things we do at our properties is... uh, on a periodic basis, we have resident activities because I want to bring that cul-de-sac neighborhood feel over there. I want everybody to know each other. I want to have a community. So we had Mother's Day. We gave a single long stem rose to every mom and said, thank you for what you do. Uh, we kicked off Memorial Day with the pool opening. And so we had, you know, popsicles and, you know, barbecue by the pool, etc. cetera. Uh, we like to do a national night out celebration, bringing our local police to the property as well as a fire truck because kids love to explore a fire truck, but learn about fire safety. Residents get to know their local police officer. So they're already familiar with him, her before something happens. Um, our property staff get to interact with the residents. So the residents also complain about the bad residents who are, you know, 
uh, playing loud <laughs> music at night or whatever else. So you get all of that community kind of uh, gossipy kind of conversations going. But also when residents cannot pay their rent, they come and have conversations with you. They tell you, I just lost my job, but I want to stay. And they've been really good paying residents the last two years. You don't want to kick them out. So yeah. we work with them. We find them like, for example, in places like Dallas, you've got a Dallas rent relief. So you see if they qualify and you help them with the paperwork. So this isn't about being a mean landlord and kicking out the every tenant who can't pay, but it's more about, okay, are they good people? Are they the kind of people who want them to stay in the property? How can we help them provide? And so they can stay here because a kid goes to the school across the street. I don't want them to have to search for a home in the middle of the school year, just because, you know, this month they lost their job or something happened. So you get to build a community when you do that. So Halloween is another favorite one, costume contest. Uh, we do Thanksgiving, either pies or turkey. We have Santa usually for Christmas. We have an Easter egg hunt. We get an Easter bunny out. So tons of these resident activities happen. And it's not just the feel-good side of the business like the PTA mom that I am. There's more <laughs> to it than that. When you have a community like this, you build retention. So your renewals go up. So if you're operating with a tight cash flow right now, you're on a floating rate bridge loan, et cetera, and you can retain more residents, that means you have less of turn costs. You have uh, less units vacant. They bring their friends and cousins, et cetera, which makes it harder for them to leave. And uh, when your budget is tight, this is what I recommend is um, instead of fighting for that last $25 or $50 per month in rent, which in a year's time is only $600, you know, just kind of find a compromise, maybe give them a new fan or something, make them stay at that other rent. And your turn cost is going to be way more than that $600 that you might be saving. So if you're hoping to kick the can down the road till conditions improve, be careful about your spending, reduce those turn costs and retain the good people because they'll be grateful to you. They'll be loyal to you. They'll be like your watchful neighbor sort of in your property. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely awesome, you know, and it's it's extremely cool to kind of have that, you know, like personalized, like community, mm -hmm. you know, type of effect mm -hmm. that has a very strong potential to be a win-win across the board, mm -hmm. right? And like, yeah, it's, yeah. exactly, you know, kind of taking it um, and implementing that, you know, and not just having it be like just the business, you know what I mean? Like just the project, right. but, you know, adding that, that human element to it that everybody you know, all the way down to the kids, you know, getting wowed by the fire trucks, you know what I mean? Um, to uh, and it's so inexpensive to do that. And the fact is people forget that these residents are your customers. So if you think of it as customer service and how you want to serve your customer, just like you would at a fine dining restaurant in a way, I mean, you'll figure it all out then. If you understand who your customers are and who your bosses are and your bosses in this business are the lender, the insurance company, the city inspector, and then your investors and your residents. So these are the five people you want to take care of. Insurance company, because they won't insure you if you didn't do certain things. Yeah. Whether it's repairing <laughs> some stairs or parking lot, whatever else, that's a hazard, right? So do whatever is in their list. City inspector, he can pull your permit if you don't follow their rules. Certificate of occupancy is what allows you to run a business there. And of course, your lender is the boss. Don't ever forget whatever the lender wants. You say, yes, sir, no, sir. Yeah. You say, sir yes. that's, that's how it works. They paid for 70% or more of your property. If it yeah. weren't for a lender, you wouldn't be in business. Absolutely. Yeah, no, 100%, you know. So let me ask you, what's kind of your, I know you guys are definitely, you know, sticking more towards like the Dallas-Fort Worth type of area. Is that more 
typically like dominantly your buy box or just mm -hmm. kind of like projects that you guys have done to date so far? Everything for me is Dallas until Dallas stops performing, right? Until the yeah. economy turns, something happens to Dallas. But I'm not seeing it anytime in the near future. This is where I've lived for 33 years. So this is my market. All I need yeah. to do, like I said, is look at an address and I'm going to know in less than you know two minutes if I'm even interested. Yeah. So a broker brought a deal of a very nice looking property, gorgeous property in an address called South Polk Street, P-O-L-K Street. And... I don't even have to look at it. I already know I'll never invest in that area. That's in an area of South Dallas. The property could be gorgeous. It could even be new construction. But within a two, three, five mile radius, I don't think I'm going to be going grocery shopping. I'm not going to be hanging out in the gym there, et cetera. Yeah. So then I'm not going to buy in an area where the surroundings cannot be something you can change as a property owner in the next three to five years. So the entire area has to gentrify, become more safe, and that could take much longer than your three to five year hold period, which is typical of these syndications. So um, never invest in an area that you don't feel comfortable living in yourself or letting your kiddo stay there kind of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and even to tie it, was... exactly, you know, and even to tie it back to, you know, our conversation earlier about, um, you know, having those multiple economic drivers that are very bullish on that particular market. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was actually blown away with, you know, those major companies in particular, you know, that were very, very interested in that area. Um, there's definitely a, a huge sense of security there from, you know, kind of an economic standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I always love that principle, right? Of like, even down to the level of like, you know, buying like a two or three, four family, whatever of like, oh, you know, like Starbucks just moved in down the street, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, that there's a team of people that work for that organization that do, mm -hmm. you know, some sort of market analysis and, like they don't just put it there because, you know, the it was, you know, cheap to buy the space. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so definitely leverage, uh, you know, leverage those resources out there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Take uh, care of the tailwinds. You know, that's what you need. So, um, you know, Dallas Fort Worth region has grown faster than any other state, like at like 5.95% for this year alone. And, you know, in 2022, Texas added something like 650K jobs which is a huge number, more than any other state. So I can just tell you that it's not slowing down anytime in the near future. So why look elsewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, 100%, you know what I mean? And absolutely. So just out of curiosity, have you seen, how do you feel about, like a, if a deal came across your desk today, are you typically shooting for more of a, more of a fixed rate debt or like, will you go with? Mm -hmm. um like a variable debt you know if like the numbers penciled and you know there was a, a lot of a, a buffer there in addition with the rate caps and stuff like that or how do you kind of feel about that in like today's market so i believe that sometime in at least middle to half of 2025 rates mm -hmm. will come down so if i'm in a deal in 2023 and in two years the rate comes down you know it would be nice to have a floating rate loan where i can yeah. adjust to that but the problem is investor sentiment. So today, yeah. if I go to investors with a floating rate loan, even if I tell them I've capped it, I've underwritten it, it's much harder to raise that money. So yeah. the compromise we did, because the biggest problem with some of these large fixed rate loans like Fannie Mae, et cetera, is at the end, if you terminate the loan in three to four years, when it's a 10 year fixed, you pay what's called a large prepayment penalty. Yep. Because Fannie has planned for a certain amount of, let's say, 5% interest rate for the full 10 years, but you're terminating in three years. Well, they want you to still pay the remaining seven years of interest. 
And that's why the prepay and penalty tends to be in the millions of range. That's why people don't like that anymore. So the way we have compromised on that is the two Freddie deals that I got last year that I mentioned earlier, we got what's called a step down prepay. So we know exactly what our penalty is going to be if we sell it in year three, year four, or year six. Uh, we have those numbers. So we factor that into our underwriting. And so that's a way to kind of overcome that. Um, and today, if we can lock in a rate in the range of five to five and a quarter percent, I don't feel like that's a huge interest rate. And uh, so, again, it depends because bridge loans today are so expensive. They're like yeah. <laughs> very, very high. And I don't think my investors will go for it. It's that simple. I have to do what my investors will like. And I do periodic, you know, phone calls, surveys, texts, et cetera, with them. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I do have one question for you that I like to ask everybody. Um, mm -hmm. How do you define wealth? For me, um, wealth is the freedom to do whatever I want, when I want, and with who I want. Mm -hmm. And I felt wealthy when I had a $36,000 salary in corporate, but very soon I was tied to their schedule and I yeah. couldn't pick what I wanted to do. So once I had children, I couldn't just take off to have lunch with my son at school or go to his afternoon event or whatever else. So then the freedom of schedule became a greater priority. So that's how I define wealth now is freedom of schedule. I love that. Absolutely. No, I, I'm right there with you. You know what I mean? I, I definitely, mm -hmm. uh, definitely agree there. <laughs> so I do have one more uh, question in this this little segment there. Um, what was one life-changing piece of advice that positively impacted your development in business or life? Surround yourself with positive people who are on board with what you want to be doing and ideally mentors who've done what you have already wanting to achieve in the future. Yeah. I was a W-2 engineering employee. The idea of starting a business, getting into real estate was not known to the 10 people around me. They were yeah. all <laughs> people. So I couldn't take advice from them for real estate. I had to go find a new group where everyone was in real estate, doing things ahead of like three to five years ahead of where I was. And that's exactly where I got my business advice. So the people who served you in your past might be wonderful, nice people, whether that's parents, cousins, siblings, etc. But don't take them for business advice because they're not the ones who are going to help you get there in your business goals. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's absolutely huge. And that that's something that I've I've realized over the past eh, three to four years, um, how important that really is. You know, like who who you like the choice on like who you go to for a particular different types of advice. And like because I mean, everybody will give you some sort of advice when you ask them something. Right. But it's it's a huge detrimental factor in who you actually get that from in the direction that you continue to go following that conversation, you know, and it's exactly like you mentioned, you know, like always, um, you know, finding the people that are a couple steps ahead of you and, you know, seeing how you can give them value, vice versa, um, you know, always continuing to consume and, and find, you know, those groups of people that like really resonate with the new version of you and figure out how you guys can serve each other um, you know, to the best of your ability. Yeah, it's it's detrimental. The the power of your relationships is is absolutely critical in everything. <laughs> yeah, it's who not how. Yep. Phenomenal book, by the way. Side mm -hmm. note. Absolutely love that one. <laughs> yep. Um 
Alrighty, guys. So we're going to jump into a new segment on the show called Action Steps for Abundance. She is going to share two immediate action steps for the two dominant demographics in our audience that listen to the show. The first one, what's one immediate actionable step for somebody that's on the fence about passively investing in syndications? And I know we already, you know, kind of dug through a good amount, you know. <laughs> so the actionable step for someone on the fence about passive investing is number one, uh, be ready to write out your criteria mm -hmm. and give yourself a timeline to get educated. 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever that might be, have targeted learning targets for those timelines and say, okay, it's been 90 days. I've learned everything I need to learn. I've got my criteria. Jump. Do it. Right. Beautiful. Or say, this is not for me, but make a decision. Don't be here a year from today, still undecided. Yeah. Give yourself a deadline, study what you need to study, get educated and make a decision. I love it. Exactly. And that's the huge thing, right? Is like learning as much as you can, but also not getting stuck in that analysis paralysis, just yeah. learning enough to be dangerous and going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you're a co-general partner, make sure the general partnership team, whatever underwriting they shared with you, who gave you those inputs and validate those inputs into the spreadsheet? Because input is what creates that output. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And the other question, what is one immediate actionable step for GPs to grow their business? To grow your business, you've got to be around people who have grown the way you want to grow. Yeah. Right. Some people might grow because they have a mentoring program and they might just have one or two deals. If you want to grow, let's say I want to acquire a thousand doors in market X, go latch on to the person doing that. Learn everything you can for them from them, because that's how you're going to grow. Beautiful. So like straight to the sources as much as physically possible. Yeah. Yeah. And whether that's social media, following them, getting their newsletters and then getting them on a podcast like this. Right. So Kyle has a great unique perspective now because he can pretty much call somebody to interview and ask all his questions. So who <laughs> is that person who is doing what you want to be doing and find a way to get through to them, find a way to help them. If they're on a conference, go early and offer to volunteer at that conference. See how you can get time with that. Whoever is your idol, right? Who's going to be who you want to be one day. It's huge. It's all relationships and, and mm -hmm. just giving value. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Sandia, thank you so, so much for coming on here. This was absolutely freaking amazing. Like, like, thank you so much. We're, Very um, glad to help you. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. Seriously, you know, I know uh, you gave me all your social media already. I'll, I'll tag everything below, guys. Check out the description. Go follow Sandia. She was absolutely amazing. Thank you so, so much for everything. This thank you. <laughs> and yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. And if I might give a little bit of a plug. Yeah, absolutely. It's called Next Level Your Life. You can find it on Amazon. And I wrote one chapter in it. So if you do a search, it's an Amazon bestseller, um, Next Level Your Life. Um, it's got a series of inspiring stories by a lot of different people, Robert Helms, Kyle Wilson, uh, Simon Bailey, a lot of uh, really good people. And you'll get inspired. One of those stories will resonate with you. And that's what's going to trigger you to next level of your life. Love it. I'll definitely check that one out. Absolutely. <laughs> All righty, Sandia. Thank you so much. That's a wrap for today's episode. 
We want to thank you for being a valued listener of the Creating Wealth Podcast. Make sure to visit www.creatingwealth.com to connect with us. Dive into our ever-expanding library of informative blogs. Get access to our private investor portal and explore a wide range of additional valuable resources. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue to create wealth together. 